so I'm Lisa Rains from Pride Road Architects. Um, we're a, um, a, a architectural practice franchise business, which is quite unusual. Um, and I'm delighted that Simon has agreed to join us. Um, we've invited all the RIBA candidates, uh, presidential candidates, um, in on, on these one-on-one -on -one interviews um, over the next few days. And um, we'll hopefully be putting this in its entirety on YouTube um sort of over the next couple of days so thanks very much for joining us simon um do you want to just introduce yourself yeah pleasure to be on your show um, <laughs> uh, uh, so i'm simon orford i'm a founding partner of ahman architects which i was just telling lisa we set up 30 years ago so um you know as I was saying, we started off, we left college, we worked together for three years, and then when we got our part threes, we left um, to, to um, start a practice because we naively thought the world would come to us. Yeah. Where, where did you do your part threes? Uh, we did at the Bartlett. So we, I studied at Sheffield with Paul Monaghan, and uh, uh, Jonathan Hall and Peter Morris studied at Bristol, and we all met at the Bartlett. We collaborated as students. Mm. And then it was 1986, which was a very buoyant time. So we went out into the world saying, employ all four of us or none of us. It was a sort of experimental, it was a it was an early disruptor. Yeah. And we were quite disruptive. Um, and we worked for a guy called Bill Jack at Building Design Partnership, who was keen to embrace the idea that we could use us to do competitions and design, but also build buildings. So we got a great three-year experience in a large um, firm who's, who were interesting because they were a kind of, Grenfell Baines was a bit of an old socialist, it was a bit of a cooperative model, yeah, they were an early kind of employee-owned trust. So it's a great three years, but when we were 26, 27, we'd been doing competitions in the evenings for ourselves. We'd won a few, so we thought, time to go before we earn too much money, you know, before you got committed, we were all renting, no one had a mortgage, you know, it was a time where you could take a risk kind of thing before you got too embroiled in a career. So, um, yeah, but it was very difficult. First four years, five years were, as you would know, tough, yes. very tough. Yeah. So what was the, um, what were the biggest challenges when you just set up? Uh, survival. <laughs> I, I don't make no bones about it. We had a little office above a Pizza Express in Charlotte Street mm. um, and we got some consultancy work to our old practice, which is a model we've always continued. Um, and we, you know, doing work for them because we'd left and we we're finishing off jobs we'd done. And we were doing competitions in the evening. As I was telling you earlier, we were advertising in the local paper for like loft extensions. So we had this strange world where we might get in the final 12 for the new Museum of Scotland, while at the same time we were surveying someone's roof extension or building a new kitchen. But it was quite a good grounding and contrast because you never take anything for granted once you've been through that kind of experience. Yeah, as you I, will know. Yeah, that that's one of the uh, the ways that I started. Um, I set up in 2010, 
um, after working for other companies for 10 years um, and then sort of struggled with maternity um, uh, was made redundant twice whilst on maternity leave set up on my own and yeah started to get a range of jobs in um, but what I what I found was that the uh, domestic extensions were predictable um, you could sort of I, I, and I started to streamline the whole process so I, I knew that if we were talking to you know a number of people doing x amount of marketing that we'd get some y amount of inquiries and then for each inquiry we would uh, for every two inquiries would do one um, free initial consultation which is an hour and yeah. from there for every two of those we'd convert them into a concept design workshop and that's our first um, paid piece of work and you know we still work like this where we go to a client's house well yeah. I'm doing it virtually at the moment so we draw out the uh, their existing layout in front of them and then using templates the stencils and templates for you know toilets and tables and um yeah you know clients can really understand how this space is going to shape and what kind of like the the trick usually is you've got to get what's in a client's head first you've got yeah. to draw it out because if you don't draw it out they won't move past it they'll always come back to that but i just wanted to put the loo you know at the end yeah. of the house you're like that's the wrong place well why is it the wrong well you've drawn it and showed why it doesn't work and then you can just move on so um we do our concept design workshop and it's a paid piece of work yeah. so we charge 300 quid um, and we get paid before we send the drawings out so that's you know that's our key value yeah. uh, and then you know we kind of let the clients decide what they want to do we get the clients to do their own feasibility we get them to speak to builders to get an idea of cost estate agents to get an idea of value and neighbors to see if there's any showstoppers so by the time they come back to us a month later they're telling us whether they can go ahead but they're realistic about it so yeah. they're not going to commission builders to come in do a project that's you know twice over budget and the value will never stack up because um, I don't believe in putting clients in negative equity you know they're, they're making a conscious decision and then when they come back and say yes we want to go ahead it turns into a project and then we deliver that with our technical team so that seems a very smart model because you transfer the, the the need to commit back to them so you get paid for your consultation where you're giving them the benefit of your ideas which are valuable yes but then you're kind of testing them so how many actually come back from a paid consultation how many become a project um it used to be one in four um, yeah. At the moment, I seem to be converting four out of ten. So that's good. Like two and that's a half. very good. But yeah. you give them the rules by which they should judge it. You mm. talk to them about negative equity. You talk to them about risk and that kind of thing, and, and, and neighbours, so that they know. You give them a sort of task list. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. 
Yeah, so then they've also committed their own time, so they're not just having fun. Because mm. one thing we did find was we'd get someone walking through the door saying, design me a beautiful house in the country. And actually, we'd get very excited, but they weren't actually serious about it. It was a sort of, they were just having the fun of being with an architect mm -hmm. um, and picking their brains, you know. Yes. So um, that probably takes me to one of the questions I wanted to ask. So um, part of the uh, innovation at Pride Road has been the seamless pivoting of the business online during lockdown. And the result is that we've seen no reduction in business. So what are your thoughts on how the architect should respond in the post lockdown economy? Um, I think it's been quite interesting because for the last, obviously we've grown from four people to a much bigger office of about 500, but we probably, when, when there's a really good architect in our office and they want to go back to their place of birth, which might be Portugal or you know, Japan, or in one case, Uruguay, if we like them and they like us, they might be going back to set up their own practice or they might not. They might be just going back for change of life. We will save them. If you want to carry on working for us, um, you can um, online and you have to make it work. And if it doesn't work, you know, we'll elegantly end the relationship and just, you'll just be a former employee and a friend. Mm. But we've, so we've probably had two dozen people working around the world for the last five or six years, um, and they, interestingly, the, the benefit they brought is, first of all, we'd know them, that have worked with us for three to five years, so they were, you know, then they would leave and go back to their, you know, their home country, their new country, and um, we always found they were the most productive people, because they weren't being dragged to, they were slightly lonely for them, so online is important conversation-wise, coming to the office every month or so, flying in, obviously that's out now, but flying in to spend a couple of days with colleagues was important. But they would be incredibly productive because they weren't being dragged around to meetings like everyone else. And what we found in the lockdown was it's been difficult for some people because their domestic accommodation, you know, with a family and kids in a smaller flat is not easy, but they're not wasting time on travel and you know, and, and being dragged to excess meetings. There's a sort of meeting culture. So we found production is good. Mm. Um, morale and mental well-being um, is something that, you know, we, we all need to keep an eye on, particularly with people with difficult situations. You know, it's fine if you've got a room in the bottom of the garden or a room in your loft. It's not so good if you're a single parent and there are two children and there's no schooling going on, you know. So it's... Overall, it's fine, but there, you know, there, there are people who are flying and there are people who are struggling. And our overall view has always been, look, you know, do what you can in the work you can do. And if it's a problem, we'll talk about it. But sometimes if someone can only do 20 hours, it's a good 20 hours rather than a distracted 40. We've never believed in the culture of people hanging around at work for the sake of hanging around, you know. Mm. And ha have you seen your, um, have clients been putting projects on hold or something? Um, most projects have carried on to a stage. Mm. You know, if they're in the construction stage, they've slowed down because of the, you know, the work streams have to slow down because of social distancing. Um, if they're in planning, planning's been really good. 
you can get to meet Money. more planners. Yeah. You can get Money. to meet more planners than ever before. Yeah. Certain kinds of um, public hustings that can be hijacked by protest groups are less easy for them to hijack online. Mm. So, I mean, selfishly, I mean, that's democracy, but selfishly, democracy has been slightly more civilized. I don't mind, you know, if we're going to be criticized, we're going to be criticized. Um, and that's part of consultation, which is what also said, you know, makes us all think harder. But no, I mean, we found most things have carried on at the same speed. I think the, the, the blockage is, we found, is new work. You may not have found that, but we found, I think people are thinking, when we come back in September, we'll start to get the new work going. Mm. Um, but I think that started to change and the new work started to come in. But yeah. it's definitely not in the same flow. Yeah, we know we've, um, there was a, a slight stutter at the start of lockdown when um, sort of clients who were contemplating doing, doing the work kind of stopped and paused for a long time. Yeah. But no, straight away we got new inquiries, new inquiries. We've done, you know, lots of, lots of inquiries, lots of uh, workshops and people moving forward I, we've done a couple of planning applications whilst people are in the process of buying properties um and like you say because planning's going so fast yeah that's good it's it is really good i think there are also things we all need to learn from this to take back mm. into the post-covid return to whatever form of work work is because i think there are, there are good things that come out of this there are also bad things. So I can be in a meeting in Bath, then one in Manchester, then one in Bristol, bang, 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 with no travel. Now the danger is when you now go on holiday, people say, well, can you just Teams or Zoom into this meeting? And I think one of the problems of this whole process, and the reason people will want to come back to work, is actually the work-home shift. And that, you know, work can be a place to come together to meet colleagues, to escape from home, to enjoy coming back to home. And I think that has been a challenge. But, you know, when we come forward, we've been saying meetings. Sometimes there's 20 people in a meeting and the m and &E engineer will speak for 30 seconds. So now you can say, let's just get the five or six key people in the room. The others could be on teams doing work and they just pipe up when they need to. Plus, we're also thinking often in large projects, there's a big team. They can't all be in the client meeting. They don't get the nuances. So now they can listen in on teams to what's going on. So you can get much better experience for younger architects from you know, using these mediums. Mm. Yes, I mean, we found that because um, we, we've got an online community um, with the franchisees, we have regular meetings so um whether it's once a week or we've got whatsapp groups so if you've got a technical issue you know we can just quite fire it off and you know sort of has anyone had an experience of this planning issue or you know this yeah. type of construction um so we've got that kind of technical support um that's been quite useful um yeah I, th I think there's going to be a lot to learn and you know again because because of the franchise you know can, we can bounce ideas off of each other what's working for one person in another area we kind of take sort of like marketing wins from someone and then we can apply it 
I think I mean, you've, you've got the three of us kind of putting into a marketing budget. So actually our marketing spend is much bigger than you would be, you know, if, if you were on your own trying to promote one practice. Yeah. We've got three people feeding into like the SEO for, you know, architect, residential architects throughout the country. Um, so, you know, it's kind of the sum of the, what was it? the sum is greater than the the parts um well i always think i mean to me one of the things i've been saying is that i think the architecture profession will always survive and do well it's tough obviously but people are quite um if they if they, be, if they become architects they have ingenuity they have a breadth of vision mm. they've been through a you know a difficult a entertaining varied course where they've learned to write to draw to think to communicate. So they're quite an inventive profession. And to me, one of the things the RIBA could be is a kind of hub and a connector for bright thinking. In a way that you are talking about now on a smaller scale, you know, that's what should be happening online. So it doesn't matter whether you're in Bournemouth or Manchester or Withenshaw or wherever it might be, that actually you can have like-minded colleagues and share ideas and experiences. And that's one of the things I think we all miss um, when we were students working on our own in our garret or when we're when we were practitioners on our own that's why we taught to get out of the office um, and get into an academic environment to engage with students in a discussion mm. so we've just had a, a question come in that says what would you say to upcoming architects I'm sorry what would you say upcoming architects need to consider when they graduate and begin to practice, will there be a complete new shift in the world and what's expected for them to do? Thanks, Dan. Um, it's a big question. I, I, I think there won't be a complete new shift in the world. I'm back in the office now, I'm walking in every day, the wheels are beginning to turn, people are coming to the, you know, the cafes, the shops. It's beginning to return. Of course, there will be you know, further lockdowns, there will be fears of another pandemic. But I think the world, you know, isn't going to change that dramatically. But what you need to do is bring the best experience from this world into the post-COVID world. And I think what's expected of architects, I mean, I always say that what's expected from young architects, to me, is, is, is the ability to ask questions and think. I mean, there's a long discussion about how much technical training should you get in, in university. In my view, practice should be training people. We are on never stop, we should never stop learning as architects. And so whether you're a young architect or an old architect, you should always be asking questions and learning and gathering knowledge. So, you know, the rule we always have is you can ask the dumbest question about the size of a brick. It doesn't matter as long as you're then learning and moving on. Because you can't teach people, say, construction or design as a kind of a rule of law it's, there's not a clear grammar but there are logics and what you want is the future of profession is people who've got the ability to keep reinventing the logics of architecture to make every more useful and more delightful buildings so do you want to um so it's good good time to segue into your bid to be uh, our iba president yes uh, so <laughs> what would you say are the principles at the heart of your campaign um, well, look, I, I've always believed in uh, architecture as a discipline to gather people together 
to lead a collaborative and consultative process. So with clients, I don't believe in secret agendas, you share information, you share it with consultants, you, you bring everyone into the party, the structural engineer may, you know, may have equally valid views to yours about things. The same with public engagement, it can be difficult, but just be open-minded. But then you have to offer overarching ideas to pull that dis diaspora of people together. And so my view of the RIBA is it's got confused as to being a kind of institute with a brand. In my view, it is simply um, the mechanism by which anyone who cares about architecture can share ideas about best practice. So your model, you know, in my view, should be being shared amongst practitioners openly. Others might then copy it, and that's kind of fine, and there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah. Just as we can share best practice on, if we say operational carbon, something that we're focusing on, it's very emotional and important campaign for the future of the environment, but what about embodied energy? And there are different attitudes. And to, you know, Johnny Falkium and, and others, and Andrew Ward, we look at you know, trying to fight for the preservation of you know CLT as a construction tool because it's obviously got huge benefits. All that kind of debate should, in my opinion, be captured in the RIBA through exhibitions, through uh, you know webinars, you know online discussions. So it doesn't matter whether I've talked to people in America, in Hong Kong, around the country. It's the idea that you go to the RIBA because you want to have your mind opened and be connected to other people, not because it's a funny old institute that you join because it's a campaign badge. I noticed you said you were a chartered architect, mm. so I assume you've chosen not to join the RIBA, which is not uncommon. Or are you? No, you're in the RIBA. Oh, because no, because there's this thing about a lot of young architects joining the ARB and using the title Chartered Architect rather than a member of the Royal Institute of British Architects, which yeah. is a, which is optional. You, you, but I, I thought I didn't think you can use the title Chartered if you're a member of the ARB. Well, there we are. There's a long run, but the ARB is, is the title protector. We are a voluntary club. Yes, that's the point. After I, I thought it um, meant that you would signed up to the. Okay, well there you are. There's a confusion. There is a, a confusion. There is a confusion, and actually, this I I sat on the RIBA Council, National Council, between 2015 and twenty eighteen, and uh, this was one of my um, I, a motion that I brought it in. Just just the fact that um, the general public. Certainly the people who I'm talking to, lay clients, don't know the difference between architect and non-architect. Um, and so there really does need to be a public education to, you know, about the fact that the term architect is, is protected, that an architectural designer um, is not an architect. Um, and what it means to be an architect. I've, I have noticed that the RIBA have started to address, um, to focus some of their market, marketing budget onto um, uh, in that area, but it's only- You can be an architect and have the title as a number of the architects in my office do and do not and not join the RIBA, which is how it is and how it's set up. Now, there's often been a battle, RIBA, ARB. In my view, 
you would only get work as an architect because you do what you do very well. And those who choose to go to someone called an architectural designer equally, and we only have protection of title in this country, we don't have protection of activity. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm actually personally okay with that because I, I don't think the great architects of history were members of the RIBA. The, member, the RIBA you should be a member of because you think it's useful to make you a better architect and, you know, and protects you in that way because it helps you share knowledge and garner knowledge quickly rather than a defensive active club. You know, it's got to be a progressive um, learned society which, as you talk about, you know, quickly you can solve problems because you can dip into a database of colleagues who share ideas with you or who open your mind. So that, to me, is a positive rather than a defensive reactive. I don't think defensive reactive will work. Mm -hmm. So going back to what you were saying about um, sort of putting my business model out there to, um, um, to uh, as, as, a, as a good business model for other people. Yeah, absolutely happy. I mean, the, the reason why I set up the franchise was, was that I saw that there was a gap um, in the uh, industry where sort of a huge number of sort of women were joining the um, as, as students but then falling off um, as they qualified or falling off as they kind of re reached um, sort of senior levels and that actually Pride Road um, would provided a really strong business model that that actually meet, met that gap um, and it's not just for women it's for sort of anyone sort of who's more marginalized and, and struggling to to make a way through so yeah it does come from an altruistic sort of heart i think there's something there about um you know you said you were twice made redundant whilst on maternity leave and i think yours is a great model to allow people who, who choose to home work mm. to, to engage in, in a positive career equally in practice um I think undoubtedly we've got to do more not to lose talent and that comes back to this post-COVID thing. Um, if, for instance, I mean, childcare can be very expensive, particularly in the early years, home working can become more of an option for people. You know, we're saying there'll never be a standard five-day-a-week model again. Some will choose that, but others might do two and three, two at home, three in, um, which we've been doing in the office anyway. It allows... Um, people to stay in traditional, as in going to work practice as well. So yours is a model to deal with the fallout and then make it into a positive thing. But the other point of the fallout is we shouldn't be having the fallout. Absolutely. You know, as an industry, we shouldn't be having yeah. that fallout. It yeah. should be because... There's been all this talk sort of like for generations about how to, you know, the fact that we shouldn't have it, but I've just found a way to make it work. No, that's great. Yeah, I think that's great, but we've got to have a model where you say people positively choose your model because mm. they want to do it, not because maternity leave has yes. left them damaged, if you see what I mean. Okay, um, so we're coming towards the end of the session. I've had another question uh, through from Taz. Um, as our IBA president, will, will you consider extending affordable education by expanding the trailblazer group companies for level seven apprentices as many students begin educational journey but find themselves unable to afford it as, at a master's stage 
Uh, yeah, we, we were part of the Trailblazer group as a practice. We've got apprenticeships. I'm also a trustee of the LSA, and I was once vice president for education years ago in the RIBA when I set up a thing called teaching practice. I'm absolutely convinced that we need a profession that's more representative of a diverse society. And to do that, the old model of three years and two years full time, to me, would always exist, but there could be parallel models. We support one in Sheffield as well. Um, and they've struggled to get their part one going, but I think part one, part two, could, should all be able to be done part time, mm. not just to help the diversification of the profession, but I think practices who take responsibility for their nurturing talent become smarter practices. It's not um, altruistic, it's actually responsible, and actually, you know, people benefit in the practice from helping to be mentors to young architects. So to me, we've got to open up many and different pathways into the profession. And if you've been quite honest, it's a slightly crazy idea that you'd always learn at the beginning and stop, which goes back to my original point about, I don't really mind if someone hasn't qualified, if they're a very good architect, they're a good architect, they might not be able to be called one. But we always say part three is an important learning process about contract, and again, it's a campaign badge, but there's people who haven't done it. You know, a friend of mine who never studied architecture at all, did furniture design, who was a brilliant architect, in quotation marks. Mm. So we've got to open up the profession in all ways, and not only that, if someone leaves after part one and becomes a filmmaker, they should be part of the RIBA. They're part of our culture of people engaged with architecture. So there's this strange idea that you have to go all the way through to join. To me, we should be opening up sort of associate membership to people who've studied architecture, become clients, become makers, become contractors, you know, become writers. You know, a friend of mine is a, a writer now ahead of school. You know, to me, that's what we want is an RIBA that's full of bright people committed to making a better environment rather than people with a badge. So if we're coming to the end of the session, um, if you had one um, agenda that you want to try and drive through the RIBA in your term as president, what would it be? A single agenda item? Um, my single agenda item is, is an online and virtual mechanism for capturing architectural discussion. Okay. The idea of the House of Architecture is we have a global membership. The students, it's 50,000 people. And it's not about buildings that we're in. It's about um, a, a means to come together to debate and share best practice and opening up our doors to everyone who's engaged and interested in architecture. Because if the public suddenly engaging with architecture, we get a more powerful voice and then we can champion yeah, my contrast to the build, build, build of the last few days is design, design, design. Yeah, in every way, design your business, design your career, you know, design your projects, design your relationship with clients. I'd like to design the RIBA to be an open institute of ideas. And um, finally, is there anything you'd like to ask of me? Um, I'm kind of, I'm intrigued by your model. Mm. You seem to have really got it going well. You said 
you did it partly because of the home working and other things. If would you go back into traditional office work practice, or that life balance for you is absolutely right? Oh, well, oh yeah. Um, I don't think I'd go back into the traditional office setup now. I think I've sort of found found my calling and sort of in tying in that business and you know business marketing coaching architecture together and i think it, i think it's my way of kind of leading leading the charge and helping other people to just jump over some of the barriers it's a great we're... model the, the sole practitioner model is is one that is kind of you know from full of uh, challenges very tough challenges and having a network of people you can draw upon sometimes just to share your pain mm. i'm sure is, is useful but also in a way to me you're a mini model of what an online institute of ideas yeah. would be about yeah people yeah. be open to share good ways of solving problems and therefore you're not afraid of your peers or the architectural designer or whoever might be challenging you because you've got a network of people around you mm. who are actually giving you the confidence to move forward. Now, I think that's a great model. Yeah, it is. It is the confidence. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Simon, for joining me on our, on my first uh, webinar. <laughs> um, good luck with your campaign. Um, be great to keep in contact sort of going forward. Um, and when does voting open? Uh, I think it's on the 14th. We must stop campaigning on the 13th. So you'll go from being hustled on Twitter or LinkedIn or hustings to, to a nice quiet July. <laughs> so um, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Um, and the, the online thing, once again, proves to work really well. It's been a real pleasure. And very best of luck with Pride Road. It's a really great initiative. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. Bye.